this time I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading verse 10 through verse 13. As you're turning there, you know, sometimes during a worship service when we're singing, there's always that verse or two that just sticks out. It, I knew it beforehand, but it just immediately sticks out while we're singing it. I think stanza two was one of those verses for me. Must I be carried to the skies and flowery beds of ease? Did you catch that? While others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. Life is hard. Even as a Christian, life is hard and painful. God says, in this world, you will have trouble. It's not a bed of ease. It's painful. And we fight the good fight of faith, knowing that he has conquered and overcome the world. And that's the theme of the series that we're in right now. Christian warfare and the battle gear necessary to fight. The battle gear necessary to fight. Last week I began the sermon series, and the first sermon was entitled, Prepare for Battle. And battle isn't for the faint-hearted. It requires much strength. In spiritual battle and warfare, we are too spiritually weak to fight the good fight. And as Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So the strength that we receive, the strength we're looking for is the strength of the Lord. He enables and empowers the Christian to prepare to fight. That's where it begins. You have to prepare for battle. And that begins knowing who you are in Christ and where that power to fight comes from. Faith in Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts are prerequisites to fight the battle. And here's an important point from last week's sermon. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might because we fight from Christ's victory. His victory over sin, death, and hell because of his death and resurrection. So we fight from victory, not for victory. So we fight from a certain standpoint, a vantage point, already being victorious in Christ. But in this life, we know that there are times where we don't stand. What's going on there? Well, Jesus, when we fall, picks us up. He catches us and puts us back on our feet and gives us grace upon grace when we fall on him. But we know in the end, we are victorious because he is victorious. Prepare for battle by being strong in the Lord, that strength that God, the God of might, provides. Well, this morning's sermon is entitled, Know the Enemy. Know the Enemy. Let's look in our Bibles now for the reading of God's word, verse 10 to verse 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Thus far, the reading of God's word, I encourage you to leave your Bibles open, because we're going to look at various passages within Ephesians to help us understand and interpret what Paul's saying, but also to apply this word to our hearts 
congregation of Christ, know the enemy. Prepare for battle and know the enemy. Shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor, our military was operating in the South Pacific. And through crypto analysis, the U.S. was able to crack a Japanese code that was telling the U.S. military that they were about to overtake the islands of Midway. And because the U.S. military was able to crack the code, they were able to send ships and carriers and other weapons to that particular island there. And they were able to strategically place these ships and carriers in a way that when the Japanese came, they were ambushed. Because they were able to crack the code, the U.S. was able to know the strengths and weaknesses of the enemy in that particular battle, the Battle of Midway. To know the enemy, we need military intelligence. And for the Christian, it's not cracking codes. It's looking to the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. God's Word reveals to us who the enemy is, the enemy's strengths and weaknesses, and how to withstand the enemy's attacks. How to position ourselves as Christians under the headship and lordship of Christ in this world to fight the good fight, that spiritual battle. We need to know the enemy. Our enemies first are Satan and his cohorts. Or to use an old word, Satan and his minions, his accomplices. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Before we talk about the schemes of the devil, who is the devil? Who is this enemy? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in these heavenly places. Satan is the arch enemy of God, the arch enemy of the Christ, the anointed one. His name means adversary in Hebrew, Satan. Satan, Satan means adversary. The devil means accuser. He is the adversary and the accuser. He's the adversary against God and the Christian, the God and the believer, and he's the accuser of God and his people. Satan, before he was called Satan, was an angel of God, a created spiritual personal being with an intellect and will. He still has an intellect and will. But he was created like the angels. However, he became filled with pride and became a fallen angel. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 and following speak to this. The prophet describes Satan before the fall into pride and sin. In fact, this prophecy is a lamentation over the king of Tyre. And just like in the Old Testament, when there are certain passages that maybe speak of King David but have, have its fuller fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, so too there are passages in the Old Testament that really point to Satan and who he is. And this is one of those texts in Ezekiel chapter 28, speaking to King of Tyre, but really pointing to Satan. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12, 
The prophet writes, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. He says, on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And then the Lord says, So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Isaiah chapter 14 similarly says, How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, referring to Satan. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. So in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel and Isaiah, we have a glimpse into who Satan was before his pride and fall and what happened following his pride and fall. He was held in high esteem like the archangels Michael and Gabriel. But then he fell and was cast down to earth. Because as Isaiah said, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. This is Satan's thought here in his pride. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan, this created being who has created good, a spiritual being with intellect and will, used his will to rebel against God, and he fell. God would have none of it because God is jealous for his glory and no one will usurp him. No one will dethrone God and enthrone himself without judgment. And so all this dethroning of God that we see in our culture and day will be destroyed in God's justice because he will not give his glory to another. Not only Satan is God's enemy, but his cohorts. We read in the passage, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is, we don't, we don't wrestle against human beings. Though human beings can persecute and cause offense to people and harm people physically, that's not where the real battle lies. The real battle lies in a spiritual realm. Spiritual forces of evil, as Paul calls it, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. They too, these beings, fallen angels we call them, are also created beings who were created good, but fell along with Satan. Satan wooed them so that they would fall with him. They, too, have intellects and will. They are the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. In this passage, there seems to be a hierarchy within the demonic realm where Satan is the arch enemy, the arch leader, the head leader of his cohorts. Just like Jesus is head of the church, king of the church, We know that Satan is the God of this present evil age. 
to head over his cohorts. And here we have this laid out for us of these rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. This is used elsewhere in the scriptures. In Paul's letters, Paul particularly speaks of these rulers and authorities being of the spiritual realm, doing Satan's bidding. There's a chain of command within even the demonic realm, getting their marching orders from the devil. And notice, we wrestle against these spiritual enemies, these enemies of God, Satan and his cohorts. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. When you think of wrestling, what do you think of? Because that's the word that's used here, literally. It's wrestling. You think of hand-to-hand close combat. Hand-to-hand close combat. You're getting dirty with, with the person. You're sweating it out. You're getting bumps and bruises. You're getting that cauliflower ear. You know wrestling, you know what that is. Not a bed of ease. Not a bed of ease. It's close hand-to-hand combat with Satan and his cohorts. And Paul warns us that the battle is not against man, but against these spiritual enemies. Called Satan and the spiritual forces of evil. And these enemies use cunning tactics. Secondly, these enemies use cunning tactics. And we see this in verse 11 too. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the insidious wiles of the devil. So we saw who Satan and his cohorts are. They are spiritual, created beings who fell and hate God and hate man. And they are full of evil, full of darkness. But they have schemes. They use cunning tactics to destroy you, Christian. They engage in hand-to-hand combat with you. And I think sometimes we are oblivious to this. Because when we live our lives, we, we somewhat live on the here and now in what we see with our senses. And not understand that there's a spiritual realm, a spiritual darkness And so Satan and his cohorts of demons are personal evil enemies of God and Christians, and they are relentless in their pursuits. They don't play by the Geneva Convention. That is, they don't play by certain military rules. They can care less about how they attack. What have we heard the past number of months? Russia attacking Ukraine. They're breaking Geneva Convention. They're not fighting fair. Do you think Satan cares? Do you think Satan cares about fighting fair? He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about any of you. He wants to destroy, and he uses cunning tactics, schemes, or an older translation, insidious wiles. 
He doesn't care about the number of casualties. He doesn't care if he carpet bombs the whole earth. He doesn't care. Because he wants to destroy. So what are these cunning tactics? What are they? I have a few of them for you from Scripture. I'm going to lay this out for you, and I'll give you the Scripture text. We're not going to look at them. But I'll quote some of them, but you can write them in your notes. First, their cunning tactics are that they are accusers of God and his people. They accuse, they accuse. Satan and his cohorts are accusers. You remember in Job 1 where Satan accused Job before God. Oh, you're going to protect this one. Oh, this one is really your child? Look at him or her. The devil is called the accuser. There's a reason why he's called the devil. There's a reason why he's called Satan the adversary. Because he accuses you and seeks to destroy you and make you fall into a state of despair. He wants you to remain in guilt and shame for your sin. You ever been accused of something? How does it make you feel? And to want to leave you in that guilt and shame. That's why he accuses you. He wants to leave you in a state of despair. Second, he attacks God's word and character. This too we see in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? In other words, he's impugning God's character. God's a liar. He really didn't say that to you. He isn't a God of truth. He's lying to you. And he uses these, this cunning tactic to want us to question the truth of God. Did God really say you're his child? Did God really say you're justified by faith through grace? God really say that you don't work for your salvation, that you don't have to do anything? Did God really say that you're forgiven and free? God is attacked, or Satan is attacking God's character and God's word. And he's wanting you to compromise the truth. He wants you to give in to that attack and join him on impugning God's character and truth. So he accuses God's people and God himself. He attacks, they attack or impugn God's word and character. He tries to thoroughly outwit his people. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And this is a context in which Paul tells the Christians in Corinth, to forgive the sinner, the brother who has sinned grievously, you, you need to sin, or you need to forgive the sinner. And he concludes that saying, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven. If I have forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, 
for we are not ignorant of his designs. And he says this within the context of forgiveness. They attempt to deprive the people of peace and reconciliation with Christ and with each other. And so they try to outwit us. That word can also mean um, to defraud or to take advantage of. They want to take advantage of your ill will toward another brother or sister. You ever have that? Well, I can't forgive that person. Really? Is that what the gospel calls us to? Unforgiveness? No, the gospel calls us to forgive. And Satan seeks to outwit you and me to hold resentment and hatred toward our brother and sister. That's how he tries to outwit us, to take advantage of us, to take advantage of the situation. Here we have division and disunity. There is enmity between brother and brother in the Lord, or sister and sister, or sister and brother. And the devil is going to use that opportunity to keep you in enmity with him. Remember that. Remember that. Not only does your own flesh struggle with forgiving one another, but the devil is seeking to outwit you. That's why he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, his schemes, his cunning tactics. So he accuses, he attacks God's character and word. He outwits or tries to take advantage of God's people. He wears a mask. Fourth, he wears a mask. That's another cunning tactic. What do I mean? 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14 says, For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He changes his appearance in a way that he appears in order to deceive and make sin more enticing. He makes sin look good to the eye and to the senses, to your feelings and emotions, your affections. When David ordered the census of Israel in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we read this in verse 1. Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. God did not command David to do a census. David thought it would be a good thing. And not only did Satan outwit him, but he wore a mask. He came across as an angel of light, deceiving. And friends, this is true even in churches. Satan wears a mask in churches. What do I mean? Well, there are churches that preach a false gospel. A false gospel. They promote love, and we're all for love. Believe me, we're all for love. We're love for God, we're love for neighbor. But a false gospel is not talked about. It's love. And so Satan outwits us, and he disguises himself. He wears a mask to point people's direction at love. Oh, this church is loving people. Forget about the fact that they're leading people astray in truth. They're telling lies. You see what I'm talking about? How he wears a mask, how he disguises himself as an angel of light. Yeah, love is, is wonderful. But love apart from truth is not love at all. It's a lie. How about in culture? 
And one of the reasons why we began this sermon series is because of the cultural patterns of our day, the cultural evils of our day, the certain philosophies in this culture that we as Christians are engaging in day in and day out, whether we know it or not. What about promoting the use of language that sounds Christian? You want, to, you want to know how Satan wears a mask? How he disguises himself as an angel of light? Who has a problem with words like compassion? Who has a problem with words like common good or mercy? Who has a problem with words like equality? Do you have a problem with those words? Well, for Christians... We use those words, and now the world is using those words, causing problems between the world and the church and not understanding each other, and churches capitulating to what the world teaches about these biblical attributes, these, these things like common good and mercy and compassion and equality, these biblical words and, and life worldviews. But Satan comes around and wears a mask. He's like an angel of light and distorts those words. Using human beings to change language, words that sound Christian but are very, very much not Christian at all. sounds or seems good, when something sounds or seems good, but is not in accordance with truth, a red flag should go off. He's masquerading like an angel of light. Notice that. When something sounds or seems good, but is contrary to truth, that's Satan masquerading like an angel of light. Now, there are things that Satan also does and his cohorts that are cunning tactics, and, and that is he blinds the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He comes and snatches away the word sown in the unbeliever. And we see this in, in Jesus' parable of the sowers. He blinds the minds of unbelievers and keeps them in darkness. Now these are the things that Satan and his cohorts do. But it's important to say there are things that Satan and his cohorts cannot do. They can't possess believers. That is, they can't enter believers like demon possession. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, who is indwelt in us, verse 13 of chapter 1, in him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We are possessed by the Spirit. But that doesn't mean they can't oppress believers. They also can't possess absolute power. What do I mean by that? 
They don't have the power to do whatever they want. They have limits, boundaries, because God is in control. God is in control. And that's why I warned last week, don't look for Satan under every rock or boulder. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters before in the preface, he warns us of those who, who deny his existence altogether and those who go to the opposite extreme and try to find him under any, every rock. God is in control. And these evil forces cannot thwart God's sovereign plan and decrees. In fact, they can't do anything without God's permission. They can't so lift a finger without God's permission against God's people. Because Satan is not God and, God, and he does not possess omniscience, that is, he is not all-knowing. He does not possess omnipresence, that he is not, he's not present everywhere. And he is not omnipotent, he is not all-powerful. Even Satan is under King Jesus' rule. Now what I'm about to say may seem difficult or perhaps provocative, but biblical nonetheless. That God uses Satan to humble us and discipline us. John Calvin wrote that the devil is used often to serve as our doctor. Do you remember Paul when he received a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, and he prayed? And what did Jesus say? No. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. How about Jesus? Who sent him to the wilderness? Spirit. He was immediately sent into the spirit to be tempted by the devil. There is nothing, nothing, that Satan does that is not without God's permission. Because King Jesus rules and reigns. And let's look into that further. Our enemies inhabit the heavenly places, thirdly. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemies inhabit the heavenly places. What, are, what is this place? It's the invisible spiritual realm in which these personal evil beings inhabit. This place of habitation is not beyond the control and rule and authority of Jesus, who is Lord of all and head of his church. This is hard. This is mystery, friends, what these heavenly places are. But the one thing that is firm and, and sure is that we know who is Lord over it. That though they inhabit the heavenly places, they remain under the control and rule over, over no one but Christ. Jesus, who rules over them. 
because Jesus, the Lord, has overcome these enemies in his death and resurrection. He rules over them. They have no control over Christ. Because Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, is sitting in a position of authority and power over them. I want to draw your attention to a couple passages here. Turn with me to uh, chapter 1, verse 15. These demonic forces, Satan, have no hold over the believer. They have no hold over Christ because they are, in fact, subject to believers. They are subject to Christ. Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Who is reigning and ruling over these enemies of God and of, and of Christ's servants? Jesus. Jesus is reigning over them. That's the important thing to understand, that though they inhabit the heavenly places, they have nothing on King Jesus. In fact, verse 22 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Look at me at, at chapter 2. Chapter 2, I read earlier, verse 6. And raise us up, we, by grace you have been saved, and raise us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We, even now, are seated with Christ over these demonic beings, over Satan himself. And so though we know the strengths and weaknesses of our enemy, we know this to be true of us. That nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that we are in fact seated even now with Christ in the heavenly places. And these enemies of ours have nothing on us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because I think sometimes we don't stand firm because we've missed it. And we live like practical atheists. We forget that the devil is, in fact, real and exists. In fact, one of his greatest deceptions is to get you to think that he doesn't exist. Satan and these demonic forces of evil hold nothing. And the believer, they are, in fact, subject to Christ. Another passage you ever taken notes, Colossians chapter 13 through 15, that in Jesus' death, in Jesus' death, he disarmed rulers and principalities. He disarmed the enemies. 
That's why our victory, we don't fight for victory, but from victory, from Christ's death and resurrection, his defeat over these rulers and authorities and powers. Well, let me conclude with our battle strategy. We know Paul says to put on the whole armor of God, and we're going to look into that next week. We're going to put on Christ. When you put on the whole armor of God, we're talking about putting on Christ. And all that means. But I want to conclude with this, two points. Jim Wilson was a Navy Academy graduate and was converted while he was in the Academy. He served in the U.S. Navy during the Korean War, and he wrote a little book that was given to me this past week called The Principles of War. It's, it's, a, it's a book about spiritual warfare. And he makes a striking similarities between military warfare and spiritual warfare. It's a very small book. It's a very nifty book. I loved it. And he draws the comparisons between military combat and spiritual warfare. And I just want to draw out two. Two of them that I think apply to our particular text here and, and theme. First, there's the art of communication. The art of communication. Since we know the enemy, Satan and his cohorts, communication with God and his word is indispensable. Because Satan seeks to destroy the communication that you have with God. He wants to separate you from that word of God. He wants to separate you from Christ. If he can distance you from the word. I remember one professor, I think it was Howard Hendricks, said, this book will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from book. I would like to add that this book will either keep you from sin and Satan or sin and Satan will keep you from this book. Because he wants to destroy the lines of communication. Because when they are severed, a fall ensues. You won't stand. Napoleon. Napoleon lost two of his armies because the English severed his lines of communication, resulting in no food and no ammo for his army. They fell. In 1950, in the fall and winter of 1950, U.S. forces advanced against the Koreans faster than they had thought, and they pushed the Koreans all the way to the Yulu, or Yalu River, and they were victorious. And yet, they moved so fast, they missed, they, they missed the lines of communication between the troops on the ground and the, com the, the commander, that they advanced so forcefully that they didn't have adequate food, shelter, clothing, ammo, and they didn't have enough engineers to follow them. They won the victory, but when they got to the, to the destination they were supposed to get to, they lacked supplies because there was a lack of communication. What happened? The Chinese Communist Army came in, and they were sacked. Many died, many were captured, many were saved and rescued. But when the lines of communication between you and God are severed, disaster ensues. And so you know the enemy. You know who he is. You know then who you need to be praying to and seeking strength from. Don't lose the line of communication between you and your Lord. Secondly, there's the art of cooperation. The art of cooperation. This means that cooperating forces are allies, not hostile forces. Christians serve the same Lord, the same King, the same head of the church. We fight a common enemy, and yet we take out our swords and we flash each other with them. In this day, we need to rally with each other more than ever, don't we? 
What soldier goes out to fight a battle alone? That's absurd. It's foolish. The soldier cooperates with the rest of the unit, the rest of the platoon. Christians are called to be allies and cooperate with each other because we are the church militant. We fight together. And the greatest deterrent to the art of cooperation is pride. Pride. That's the greatest deterrent, says Wilson. I spoke last Sunday evening about accountability. Christians living in accountability with one another, not being lone rangers, but being able to be accountable to one another, to share with one another, to carry one another's burdens. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to, not to live the Christian life alone because the day is approaching and be careful lest we fall. Congregation, we are at all out war. As one Puritan called it, we are in a holy war, not jihad as the Islamists call it, of a literal military war where we fight against infidels with real weapons of war. No, we are in a spiritual holy war where the weapons to be used is the armor of God. It's a spiritual battle against spiritual forces of evil who seek to destroy you. And it requires that we prepare for battle, and it requires that we know the enemy. And next week we will get into what it means to put on the whole armor of God so that when we prepare, as we prepare, and as we know the enemy and his strengths and weaknesses, we can go forth and fight. And we fight together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your sovereign grace and mercy towards us. We know that we live in a world with devils filled, as Luther once wrote, and he threatens to undo us, but we will not fear, and that your word will triumph through us. Oh, Lord, help us to be gripped by your word. Help us to be led by your word. Help us to get our marching orders from your word. For your word reveals to us who the true enemy is. And your word reveals to us how to put on Christ, how to put on the full armor of God. We pray that as a people we would be different than this world, that we would live our lives for your glory and honor, to put to death the deeds of the old man and put on Christ, that we may fight the good fight of faith against Satan in our flesh and the world. Teach us, O oh Lord, we pray, and help us to build one another up, to encourage one another to walk alongside one another in this Christian journey. Help us to not live the Christian life alone, to be a people of prayer, to be a people who encourage and strengthen one another with the word of God. Oh, Father, we rely upon you. We rely upon your grace and mercy in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who has indwelt every believer and has strengthened each one to fight this spiritual battle using the battle gear that God alone provides. In your name.